This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church, and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Joanna, Caleb, Lucy, Sam, and Tim. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. We have two for this episode, one from Joanna and one from Caleb. Here's Joanna's question. She asks, what does baptism symbolize? When you witness a baptism in church, you are seeing one of the two sacraments that Jesus Christ, our Lord, instituted himself. The Gospels actually contain an account of Jesus' own baptism. When you see someone receiving that sign, receiving the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit— It's natural to ask yourself, well, what does this all mean? What is the significance of it? What is the symbolism in this ritual act? As you might imagine, baptism is complicated. There's a lot of symbolism, and the more you think about it, the more layers you might notice. In fact, If you go back to the ancient church and you look at some of the instruction that the early Christians were given to understand their baptism, you'll find that there was a lot of thought that went into the meaning of baptism. Well, I'm not going to give you all of those different layers. I'm going to try to give you like the big picture of what baptism pictures for us. So, If you think about what happens in baptism, actually, the big picture is pretty clear. So in baptism, we apply water to the recipient in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that application of water suggests washing. But washing from what? Obviously, we use water physically to wash dirt off of ourselves, to clean ourselves. And spiritually speaking, the water of baptism pictures something similar to that, a washing away of sin. So the main symbolism that is pictured in baptism is the remission or the washing away of our sin so that we might be forgiven. In the Bible, there are many examples of the people of God being delivered through or over water. You think about Noah, for example, in Noah's Ark, or the people being led through the Red Sea when the Red Sea parts. Now, these historical events are then used later on in the Bible symbolically to talk about the deliverance of God's people from their captivity to sin. And so in baptism, we have another, we might even say the ultimate sign of our deliverance through water, the washing away of our sin, because baptism is individual. Your own baptism testifies to you about the promise of salvation. Now, when you think about baptism, it also suggests entry into the covenant community or the community of promise. In the Old Testament, circumcision served this purpose, 
you were circumcised to show that you were part of the community that had inherited God's covenant promise, and baptism functions the same way for us. We often will talk about baptism as well as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, or the promise of grace. That word seal is significant because documents are sealed as a kind of guarantee of authenticity. So you might think of it this way, that that baptism is a seal in the sense that it is a guarantee that God will keep the promises that he has made to us. Also, one other thing that's worth thinking about, and that's this, that there's another way we have of talking about sealing, and that's when we talk about the Holy Spirit as a seal. And it's not by accident that baptism is associated with the giving of the Holy Spirit at various points in the New Testament. So that's another thing we have pictured, not only the washing away of sin, but also the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. All of this and much more is represented for us in the act of baptism. And now Caleb asks, Why does Zechariah 13, verse 4, say, Do not put on a hairy cloak to deceive? How would that deceive? Well, Caleb's question has to do with the false prophets who are being addressed in chapter 13 of Zechariah. And one of the things we're told is that a false prophet who repents of his evil will renounce his office as a prophet, he will say, I am no prophet, and he will no longer put on the hairy cloak in order to deceive. Well, what you have to understand is that prophets were associated with this kind of rustic clothing. Uh, the, the hairy coat is sort of a, a rough, uncomfortable garment that reminds us, for example, of John the Baptist who went out into the wilderness and and was clothed in this this, uh, uncomfortable way. And, And this was a sign of his prophetic office. Have you ever heard the term, a wolf in sheep's clothing? The idea is that a wolf, if he dresses himself up as a sheep, can mingle with the flock and then suddenly turn on them and attack. So he's a bad guy, but he's dressed as a good guy. That's the idea here. These false prophets, in order to be taken seriously, would dress the way that true prophets would. They would have the outer trappings of a true prophet, but their prophecies were actually false. So what Zechariah is saying is not only will they admit, hey, I'm no prophet, but they'll stop attempting to appear like a prophet. They'll take off the uniform, so to speak, and be honest with people. And now it's time for the big question. This week's big question comes from Lucy. Lucy asks, I thought going to church made you a member. Why do you have to become a member? This is a great question, Lucy, and it's the kind of question I'm always happy when people ask because church membership is something that's really important, but in the 21st century, oftentimes we don't understand much about this because a lot of churches no longer have membership, 
so to speak. So what you do is you just attend whatever church you like, and that's as far as that relationship goes. There's no formal membership process. But, of course, at Grace, we do have that process, and that's why you will see people come forward before the church, make membership vows, and be received officially as members of the church. Now, I think this is important because we can distinguish between a person who is just attending a church versus a person who belongs to that church, right? You might visit a church, but you don't belong to that church. You haven't made a formal commitment to that particular church. You're traveling and you visit a church in another city. Of course, you don't join that church because you're only going to be there for that, that Sunday. But if you are attending a church and this is a long-term thing, then you might want to join that church and formally become a member of that church. So becoming a member is, let's say, a more formal relationship with that particular congregation. In a church like ours, there are actually two kinds of member, non-communing members and communing members. I'll give you an example. So when a little child is born to believing parents who are members of our congregation, that child is automatically a member of our church. We call them non-communing members. They haven't yet been admitted to the table, the Lord's Supper, but they are members of our community. Eventually, that child will grow up in church and, Lord willing, will come to own their faith. They will believe the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ, and they will want to publicly profess their faith in Jesus. And so they'll do that before the congregation. They'll affirm those membership vows. And when they do that, we admit them as communing members of the church. So they go from being non-communing to communing members, which means they've now professed their faith and been received to the table, the Lord's Supper. So that process is not like, like going from not being a member to being a member. It's going from being one kind of member to another kind of member. It's just stages on the journey of membership. But of course, there are people who come to the church from the outside or from the outside of the covenant community, and they profess faith for the first time and are received as members of the church. We also have people who have already made a profession of faith at some other church, but maybe they've relocated to our area, and now they're worshiping at Grace, and they want to become members of this church. So they go through this process as well. They reaffirm those public commitments that they've already made. Now, the question you might ask yourself is, why bother? If you like the church, just attend the church, and you don't need to do anything more than that. And if you stop liking it, you can stop attending. Uh, why do you have to actually take these formal vows and be committed to the church in that way? And that is a question that a lot of people these days ask, because as modern people, we're kind of worried about overcommitting ourselves, and we like the idea of just showing up when we want to, being committed when we want to be, and being able to exit when ah, we don't want to be committed anymore. Uh, 
But of course, Scripture doesn't recognize our modern anxieties about commitment. Uh, The apostles expect us to be fully committed to Christ and fully integrated into the body of Christ. One reason I think this is important is because a member of the church has taken a vow to submit to the government and discipline of the church. So when we take membership vows, we are agreeing that we want to be governed according to Scripture, that we want our elders to lead us according to Scripture, and that if we stray, we want our elders to shepherd us and to guide us back onto the path. If I never take those vows, if I just show up when I want to and and leave when I want to, then essentially I'm opting out of this kind of shepherding, this kind of oversight. I'm not fully committing to the life of the church the way Jesus established the church to be. And that's why membership is so important. As I say, people struggle with this, and we always try to be patient with them as they struggle with it and and answer questions patiently as well. But I would encourage anyone who has not already committed as a member to do so. And now before we go, it's time for a few fun questions. We have questions this time from Sam and from Tim. First, Sam's question. Can you say which Caleb or Sam it is in the big question? Okay, what what Sam is getting at here is that when I mention people by name on the podcast, I only mention their first names and not their last names. And in a few cases, we have some regular contributors who have the same first names. So we have more than one Caleb, we have more than one Sam, and it may not be clear to you which Sam or which Caleb I'm referring to. So first, let me explain why it is that I don't mention last names on the podcast. Uh, The reason is privacy, because the young people who are asking questions are all underage, not yet adults. It just seems like a better policy only to mention first names, kind of in the same way that we wouldn't take your picture at church and then post it online as part of our advertising without your permission. I don't want to use your questions and then refer to you by name too absolutely, just because you should have a little bit of privacy. You're entitled to it. However, having said that, I recognize that it can be a bit of a challenge sometimes when you don't know which Sam or which Caleb I'm referring to, and it would be helpful if I could find some way of delineating between the two. So, Maybe I could come up with nicknames for the various Sams and the various Calebs. There could be like uh, Caleb the Great or Sam the Terrible or something like that. I'd have to come up with some good ones. Uh, Or we could use numbers. There could be Sam number one and Sam number two and Sam number three and four or five or six, depending on how many Sams we have at any given time. Or maybe what I could do is use the first initial of your last name, and that would differentiate between two different Sams or Calebs, and yet I wouldn't be giving like your your whole name, so I wouldn't be violating your privacy, at least not 
nearly so much. So I'll consider that. Maybe you could tell me what you might prefer. In fact, if you have a preference, you could even write it in when you ask your questions. Maybe give me the, the way that you'd like to be referred to, and I'll do my best to abide by your wishes. And then finally, we have a question from Tim, and Tim's question is, what is your favorite animal? Well, Tim, I really scratched my head over this because at first I was thinking, like, what is your favorite type of animal? And it's kind of hard for me to decide what my favorite type is. I think it would probably be either uh, monkeys or cats, uh, just depending on what mood I'm in. But then I thought, wait a second. Instead of thinking, what is my favorite type of animal? Maybe I should say, like, what is my favorite individual animal? Like, like what animal that I've known has been my favorite animal? And of course, I've known many different animals of all sorts of, of, of type. But of all the animals that I have known and befriended over the years, my favorite is definitely my cat, Clive. Clive, as you may know, passed away a few years ago, and yet I've never met another animal, whether a cat or a monkey or any other kind of animal, who was as dear to me and as interesting and fun to be around as Clive was. I think Clive and I were in a similar emotional wavelength. We had similar interests. We liked to hang out together, and we enjoyed, you know, just being quiet in one another's presence. So we were undemanding as friends and spent you know, a lot of time together without really getting on each other's nerves. And as a result, Clive was really my favorite animal and still is. But if that changes, if I meet another animal who I like even more than Clive, I'll definitely come back and let you know. And I'll let you know what kind of animal he or she turns out to be when that happens. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.